Hello and welcome to the Gentleman's Journal podcast, a fortnightly discussion all about success, modern business and the lives of entrepreneurs. My name's Joe Bullmore, I'll be your host for the day and I'm joined this afternoon at his Brixton headquarters by Will Dean, the founder and CEO of Tough Mudder. Will first came up with the idea for the endurance event while he was studying for an MBA at Harvard and despite the protestations of his professors, he decided to put his dream to the test. He'd hoped to get 500 participants to his first event, but in the end, he got more than 5,000. And in just the seven short years since, Tough Mudder has gone from strength to strength, and today has put more than 2 million people through their paces at 150 events worldwide. In this episode, the founder tells us how close he came to tear-gassing his participants, why he imported mud into the desert, and how his flash of inspiration came at the hands of an ill-fitting wetsuit. Will, thanks very much for talking to us today. Oh, of course, thanks for having me Gentleman's on. Gentleman's Journal Podcast. Mm-hmm. It's a pleasure. But I've got to ask you: are, are you have you always been a bit of a masochist? I mean, do you have you always enjoyed standing in cold fields, getting electrocuted, or is this an acquired taste? No, oh, well, I mean it's something. Of course, I picked up at a very early age. No, no. In um, you know, I think I've always been someone who's enjoyed new challenges in all elements of my life, and I yeah. think you know the idea of Tough Mudder really came from saying. Well, I would do a Tough Mudder. I think my friends would do a Tough Mudder. And I think other people would be up for doing a Tough Mudder. Yeah. It wasn't a lot of sophisticated market research in the early <laughs> days. Um, and I thought you know, doing something like this with your friends, even if getting zapped in of itself isn't fun, uh, the overall experience doing something together will be fun. Yeah. And what, when you say you didn't do any market research... I mean, were people really responsive to it? Did When you asked your girlfriend or your friends, mm-hmm. did they say that that was something they'd like to do, really? Well, my girlfriend definitely didn't say that the first okay. time I told her about it. I think she thought I was insane. Um, <laughs> no, I, you know, I came up with the idea when I was at business school, and you know, a lot of people w- were pretty negative on it. You know, the yeah. idea of a race that isn't really a race, that's more of a challenge where there aren't prizes, where you're running in the mud, getting zapped with electricity, going in skips full of ice, and you know, my professors had a long list of reasons why this wouldn't work. Yeah. And um, you know, for me, you know, the best market research you can ever do is go out to market. And if you can do that relatively cheaply and easily, as we could, that was the best thing. So you know, I said, let's put on an event and let's see if we can get 500 people to show up for sure. it. And you know, we managed to sell 5,000 spots. So you know, we felt pretty good about that. Wow. And when your professor said this wouldn't work, what made you think that it was worth pursuing? I think there are probably two things. Um, you know, just because somebody is an expert in their field doesn't necessarily mean that they're an expert in what you're doing. And uh, yes, business school professors spend a lot of time evaluating businesses. But I thought, well, I'm not sure you know an awful lot about the mindset. Yeah. And however, my target demographic, men in his 20s and 30s, probably in an office job, and you know, who's looking to do something fun with his friends at the weekend. And so... I know it was a bit of a leap of faith, but I did feel cu- quite comfortable dismissing them. And in a funny, perverse way, I think the fact that people were saying no, yeah. you know, I took some strength from that because I think most things that are genuinely new and original you know, are hard for most people to get their heads around. You, know, you always hear people today talking about how their business model is going to be the Uber of X. You know, <laughs> and um, you know, that's because people want to say, look, it's going to work like something that already exists. Yes. Yeah. And... I wasn't really saying any of that. So I think it was quite hard for people to imagine even what it would look like. 
And had you run marathons before? Had you done triathlons and endurance things? Yeah, no, I had. And I'd done marathons, I'd done triathlons. I'd, you know, I don't pretend to be an elite athlete, but I'd kind of enjoy the challenge element of it. And But, but I'd missed you know, that sense of team, being part of something yeah. bigger than yourself. And you know, one of the big catalysts for Tough Mudder was doing a triathlon and the zip on my wetsuit jamming and an amateur event. I was like halfway down the pack, absolutely no danger of winning this thing. Okay. And I turned to the guy next to me in the transition zone and he didn't want to help me when my zip jammed. It was just bizarre. Wow. Why not? Because it was pressure because seconds. It's obviously. exactly pressure seconds in an amateur event. And I thought there's something slightly strange about this event that it yeah. kind of you know, creates such weird incentives to frankly be so selfish. So <laughs> and I wanted to create something that was a bit more about team and everyone doing it together. Right. And presumably someone did eventually unzip your yes, wetsuit. Yes, so I'm, yeah, I'm, not, uh, I'm here today, right, <laughs> okay, to tell the tale. Good. I'm still not yeah. you know, in a, a transition zone somewhere in Massachusetts. Okay, um, good. Thank yeah, God. Yeah. And, and how did you publicise that first event? You say you, you were aiming to get 500 people. Was it yep. just simply a case of sticking flyers up on lampposts? Or? No, it, um, I mean, I think... You know, like a lot of things in life, you know, right place, right time. And it was the very early days of social media advertising, 2010. The Facebook ad platform was really starting to open up. Yeah. That was very powerful for us. And we did a little bit of PR um, as well. But I think because it's all about team, you know, the key is to get somebody to get their friends to sign up. Okay. You know, if you think about anything else you do in life, organize a weekend away, there's always one person who's kind of doing the legwork. Yeah. And so... You know, people say, well, how did you get 25,000 people to you know, your event in London? I say, well, we didn't. We got 4,000 people and they brought their friends. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's the, that was a huge part of it, making it team, making it social. And 95% of people that do our event do it as part of a team. Do you think we in this country or maybe around the world do less things in groups together? Do you think we join up to less clubs and aren't yeah. part of as many societies as perhaps we used to be? Well, you know, I mean, I think there's a lot of research to support that. Um, you know, unfortunately, we live in this age where... You know, people report being more lonely, you know, yeah. despite being more connected. You know, we spend more time looking at pictures of one another and actually less time interacting, having conversations with one another. And you know, that, I think, does say something about society. And you know, if you look at you know, participation in group activities from everything from church, mm -hmm. trade unions, political parties, rugby clubs, yeah. you know, almost everything, it's down. And... No, I think something like Tough Mudder is at least, you know, in part, maybe not perfectly, but in part, filling that void. So how I, I'm interested in that early days when you're speaking about publicising it. Did you have a budget? Was it was it just your own savings or yeah. had you gone for investment at that point? No, we didn't. And I took the view, look, if we can get some people to sign up for the first event, we're going to be in a much stronger place to go and raise money. Okay. It never crossed my mind we'd sell 5,000 tickets for the first event. So... And once that happened, you know, we could think again about whether we needed to raise money. But no, my co-founder and I, Guy, we both put in $10,000. I think pretty much the only money both of us had in our bank accounts. Yeah. We found a venue, which is a ski hill near Allentown, Pennsylvania. I always thought Allentown was just a Billy Joel song. Yeah, I was but, it, say. but it turns out it's a real place. <laughs> okay. And um, so, we, uh, so we rented this ski hill out of season for a day. We built a very simple website. And that left us with about $8,000 for promotional yeah. activities. So we did some digital advertising and two weeks passed. We hadn't sold any tickets. We were starting to get quite nervous. And then, um, and then we had a, a price rise coming up. You know, prices go up at midnight, that kind of thing. And um, we, uh, it was great. We had, uh, you know, we'd sold 200 tickets the day of the price rise. Yeah. And I remember going for a 
a beer, really for the first time in months because we've been working so hard to celebrate. And back then, I used to get an email every time we saw the ticket. And I had a BlackBerry Pearl, if you remember those yeah, things. Of one of the very early smartphones. Yeah. Exactly. And I, um, and I remember you know, getting up when we were in this bar in New York to go to use the restroom, the toilet, and, um, and having like 700 emails. And I was <laughs> And, and being kind of speechless, which yeah. doesn't happen very often to me. I mean, my heart was like beating. I remember wow. like, it's quite an exciting moment. I mean, I, wow, we've we've just sold a thousand tickets today, and um, uh, and I think that was kind of the real moment that we realised we were onto something. So after that first Allentown event, mm-hmm. when you got five thousand people yeah. down, I mean, how did you then decide to move forward on the next morning after yeah. that? Well, you know, I think we were all a bit shell-shocked. We'd become so focused on the first event. You'd become yeah. so kind of maniacally focused on this one day and all efforts have been on it. I do think, although we kind of knew we had to kind of do something next, I think it kind of took us a few weeks to just kind of even figure out what comes next. Um, and I remember finishing the event. Now, this is an indication of just how focused we were on getting through the event. That we got, Sunday evening, the thing finished, and we brought all the things down off this ski hill. We had a kind of pile of signs covered in mud and other kind of things that we'd ordered for the first event. And you know, we were thinking, okay, well, where do we go from here? Yeah. Um, and we realized we didn't even have somewhere to put our stuff. That's how <laughs> focused we were on the event. Yeah. And I remember us having to find one of these self-storage locations to dump all of our stuff in and turning up at the first one and then being like, yeah, no commercial storage here. And same at the second one, going to the third one with one of the interns and saying, okay, we have to pretend we're a couple <laughs> and we have to pretend this is stuff from our apartment. Muddy um, Exactly. Signs. Well, luckily they didn't look too closely at the stuff. Okay. They were just, uh, what's in there? Oh, you know, usual stuff, sofa, bookshelves, that kind yeah. of stuff. <laughs> um, of course, you know, it's like lots of muddy signs and paper cups and mylar heat sheets. Probably not the kind of stuff you normally have in a starter apartment. No, probably not. Um, and, uh, but yes, it, it did take a while. And But, you know, we had two more events in 2010. And then, you know, we really rolled out a full calendar in 2011. We had 14 events that season. Okay. And that's really when things started and to take off. And they were all across America or around that's, the world? In 2011, across the US. And then in 2012, we added the UK, Australia and Canada okay. in Um and you know, our business is basically a traveling circus if you think yeah. about what goes into it. You know, we rent a field, we have a bunch of trucks that turn up, and you know, if you turn up at one of our events a week before, there's really not very much to see. In fact, even like two or three days before the event, when I get there, I, I sometimes find myself getting a bit stressed because I'm like, nothing's done. <laughs> but you know, it's a production. You know, yeah. really things don't really all kind of go up until you know, the Friday before an event. And then by Monday afternoon, it's all gone again. It must be a huge logistical headache almost yeah. to do that all around the world and to trust that the yeah. people around the world are doing it yeah. right. How do you guarantee that every event has got the same kind of consistency? Um, so I think, I mean, the simple answer, to it, the simple answer is yes, it is complicated. Yeah. You know, we've got trucks and trailers all over the world, like logistics hubs, various different cities, warehouses, inventory, all that stuff. But the answer is, I think it's two things. The first one, unsurprisingly, is smart systems and processes. Okay. Um, you know, and those take a while to build. But the far more important thing is company culture. And you know, a lot of people seem these days seem to think that you know company culture is about having foosball tables or beer in the fridge, and mm-hmm. it's nothing to do with that at all. Frankly, it's all about having 
the right people in the right roles and having the right behavioral norms. Culture is just how people behave when yeah. their boss isn't looking. It's that simple. And when you're putting on live events, you know, it's not like we have a production line that I can just kind of walk out and inspect and you know look at a widget coming off the production line yeah. and say, yes, that's been made to spec. Um, you know, you're very reliant upon people making judgment calls about where's the best place to put the tent? Where should we put the signs? Which route shall the course go over? Okay, it's raining very hard. What should we do about that? And of course, you can train people, try and get the right people in. But creating the right behavioral norms is, is the most important thing. Yeah. And that's uh, tricky. And what about the things that are out of your control at that point? Mm. What have been, in the early days from 2011, 2012, yeah. what were the kind of big disasters? Were there any storms that hit? And- oh, very much so. We had some amazing uh, early um, events. Um, we did an event in rural Georgia and in a dry county. So this was one of those counties in the US where you, there yeah. are no bars and you know, there are no equivalent of off-licenses, liquor stores, as they'd call them. And um, we'd already had our permit granted, so we were allowed to serve beer. Right? So okay. you can consume alcohol. There are just more rules around yeah. it. And you get a free beer when you finish a Tough Mudder. And at the time... Our sponsor was uh, one of the brands under Heineken, so in a major global co- corporation. And you know, we were having to explain to them, okay, well, we've got our permits, all good. And then this local Southern Baptist minister g- got into this furore wow. about the fact that all these metrosexuals from Atlanta were going to descend <laughs> on this rural county. Yeah. And, have ungodly fun on Sunday. And um, and so I had to go down and do this town hall meeting where wow. there, were, there were local people very upset with signs saying how much they hated Tough Mudder and this guy <laughs> with a very thick Southern accent, you know, clearly very upset that I was bringing my New York ways to, um, <laughs> to Atlanta, which seemed a bit strange because, you know, of course I'm from the UK, yeah, I was gonna say. which I don't think he'd done his research on. So he was there kind of saying about how he didn't like, you know, in the States, the, a Yankee is someone from New York. Yeah. You know, it's not anyone from the States. And so he was talking about my Yankee ways. And I said, well, it seems a bit unfair. I have only lived there for nine months. But, um, I'm not sure being from England was any better. No, probably yeah. not. Yeah. So that almost really was an act of God disrupting the yeah. entire thing. Yeah. If we rewind from that kind of international business yep. to y- your early days in work, you weren't an entrepreneur, really. You worked mm-hmm. for the government. Yep. You were uh, in the counter-terrorism mm-hmm. team, I believe. Yeah, the were you a civil officer. servant? Yes, that's right. Yeah. So that's, uh, civil service is it's probably the, as far as you can get yeah. from entrepreneurial. Well, it's funny, you know, I feel like being rude about the civil service is a bit like being rude about your own children. You know, it's fine <laughs> if I do it, but I get very upset if other people do it. Um, <laughs> No, honestly, I think where being where I was you know, at that time after 9-11, it actually was a very entrepreneurial time. You know, there were lots of smart people, lots of new problems without clear solutions to go after, a real impetus for change. Um, you know, and I think I learned a lot about leadership, getting things done, coming up with solutions to problems, making sure other people shared your vision. And that was great. And, you know, and prior to that, I had run small companies, you know, I had uh, done stuff as an undergrad and at, um, and at school as well. So I think I always, always had that entrepreneurial bug. But straight after university, I did think, you know, it was a slightly different time as well, that getting a kind of proper job, at least for a few years, was a sensible thing to do. Yeah. Was it particularly difficult to transition from the mindset of a civil servant to going into a MBA education and then yeah. after that straight into entrepreneurial stuff? 
Yeah, I mean, it was a very different culture, certainly at business school, from anything I'd experienced before and quite alien to me when I got there. Some you know, great things about business school, but you know, a lot of very type A personalities there. And What do you mean by type A kind of? Very competitive yeah. about everything. Um, you, know, you're, you know, in the States, you don't just get a grade, you get put on these forced curves, so you kind of know where you are vis-a-vis wow, yeah. other people. And uh, you know, that was quite alien to me. Um, and competitive about lots of things, who's going to make the most money after they graduate, and you know, all that sort of stuff. Um, and, you know, I just wasn't really used to that. And that was very, very different from my experience having, you know, I did my undergraduate at Bristol, so you know, Bristol yeah. to Harvard was quite a transition. Um, and is there a difference in the way that Americans approach entrepreneurialism and English people do it? So, uh, yes, although I do think it's changing. You know, I, I think there have been some very positive changes in the UK in the last 10, 15 years. And, you know, I don't just mean in terms of like more VCs, more angel investors, although that's true. I think I think the attitude's changed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think in the UK, certainly 20 years ago, I think entrepreneurs, business people were kind of seen as these like Arthur Daly types, you know, right. and... You know, I think you know my parents part of the baby boom generation, baby boomer generation. I think you know a lot of them would think of like you know that business as being kind of the thing you do if you fail to okay. become a professional, and yeah. I think that's really changed. And I, and I do think there's more of a kind of good for you for trying it, and I think there's a bit more of an acceptance, you know, that if you do it and it doesn't work out, it's not the end of the world. Yeah, I, I do worry there are lots of people becoming entrepreneurs now who, you know, they may be successful in economic terms but might not enjoy it very much and you i think, think it's more of a lifestyle thing to, like, to be able to say that they're I, well i think it's yeah it's a very big um personal choice you know i think it's stressful it's lonely you know it isn't really you know like that film the social network yeah. portrays it as being you know but a lot of it's quite unglamorous particularly in the early days um you know and i think if you think oh well you know there's kind of light at the end of the tunnel it's all going to be very chill soon you're getting yourself into trouble yeah and uh, the thing about a lot of startups is they have a single core idea or an IP that is either patented or is yeah. key to them. The thing about Tough Mudder, I suppose, is that it doesn't really. Yeah. And there are other things like it around the world sure. in, in, in yeah. many countries in many different sizes. Does that make it scary for you that a young competitor could come up and, and take your crown in yeah. a way? Well, look, I think you always have to be, you know, I think you always have to try and stay one step ahead of everybody else. And I think you have to keep pushing yourself to innovate. Um, you know, I think just because there's not some kind of IP or some sort of secret source mm-hmm. in the business, it doesn't mean to say you know, there aren't lots of ways in which we can compete and differentiate ourselves. And you know, I think when you invest in a startup, you know, yes, you're investing in an idea, but you're principally investing in the management team and their ability yeah. to execute. And I think on that front... I think um, actually, you know, you're in a very different. Yeah, I think that my my personal view on that one is you can become a little bit too kind of het up about the competition, and I think the help, the best companies are really just looking to better themselves. You, yes, yeah. you have to look at what your competitors doing, but I think there's a big difference between looking at it and benchmarking yourself against yeah. that. So I want to know about this innovation lab that I hear yeah. you've got in Pennsylvania. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, the things I'm more interested in are things that didn't quite make the mm-hmm. cut, maybe because they were too dangerous. Yes. Well, you know, 
I'm sure it doesn't surprise uh, you to hear that we take safety very, very seriously. Actually, the most dangerous part of doing a Tough Mudder mm. is the drive to a Tough Mudder. Right. Um, you're actually very unlikely to seriously injure yourself doing a Tough Mudder. You're more likely to injure yourself shopping than you are <laughs> doing one of our events, as it turns out. And um, we, um, you know, when we're building obstacles, we try and achieve three or four things. We try and make them fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, we try and, and unique. Uh, we try and make them about teamwork, getting you to work together, helping each other over the obstacles. Mentally challenging. So, so and something can be scary without being dangerous. You know, like. A roller coaster can be scary without mm-hmm. being dangerous. And we definitely try and create something where people have to face their fears. And then this sense of accomplishment when you finished it. Um, you know, and so we have these kind of mad scientists and out in this field in Pennsylvania building these prototype things. And, you know, we let them kind of try everything. I mean, we really do. You know, um, and, you know, my my role in the innovation process is less about being creative. Mm-hmm. Um, it's much more about saying, look, you can think up anything. Okay. We might not build <laughs> everything, but you can try everything. And, and we have people submit ideas as well. Um, you know, we get, we, every once in a while, we'll run kind of an open source competition for people to send in their ideas. And we have the strangest stuff sent What's to us. What's an example of a particularly odd one? We had a guy send us um, uh, an idea that involved being pecked by ostriches. Or wow. emus, emus as we say over here, emus as they say in the states. <laughs> so it was basically a giant cage of emus, <laughs> and you ran in through one gate, yeah, tried to get through the other end without being pecked to death. So, yeah. um, so we didn't do that for several reasons. Okay, I can imagine. Um, uh, What's got a bit closer to, to to making the cut, but just was perhaps slightly wrong. Um, so we 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 tried for a long time to get the tear gas obstacle to work for us, and um, uh, you sound genuinely quite sad that the no, tear gas I am, didn't I work. Am. I'm sad. Well, we spent a lot of time and effort trying to get it to work. Yeah. Um, and so we had. What the, would that have been? Just a kind of room full of tear gas. That's pretty much yeah, a chamber. So you'd go in chamber. through an airlock at one end. So you'd kind of yeah. duck it, duck in through water. Get, get into it, sort of through a U bend. Yeah. You know what I mean? Of course. Um, and then you'd crawl through this kind of uh, perspex plexiglass chamber. <laughs> um, Can you see through tear gas? I've thankfully never seen it in real life. Um, no, it's kind of misty. And misty. of course, we weren't using the same stuff no. as they kind of But know, it's still kind of, what, it stung through, your eyes? It that was the idea, yeah, yeah. Cough, yeah. cough a bit. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but then we had to create something where they didn't have any you know tear gas the effect lasts for like 30 minutes or something afterwards oh, right okay and we wanted something where like the effect lasted for like a second sure. you know, so you kind of were out and done <laughs> um and so it it looked it did look quite cool but yeah we we never quite managed to get that recipe quite yeah. di- dialed in so uh, uh it, it's surprising because the electric shock field which is probably the most famous of all yes. your obstacles yeah. to on the face of it in a wet field with electric shocks that sounds like it would have been an absolutely crazy idea, but that works. Well, no, it does, and um, you know, I mean, you know, we, of course, before we roll that out, I mean, we did a, uh, you know, we worked with engineers with safety teams, yeah. and you know, it is ten thousand volts, but um, there's someone on your podcast can correct me afterwards as I get my watts and amps confused. Okay. But um, you know, essentially, volts is the speed of the electricity, and Fine. you also need to worry about how much electricity you're giving someone as well. So yes, it stings, but. Um, it's not actually a large yeah. amount of electricity. And I imagine you tested that on yourself before 
Yes. Do you, you test all of them on yourself? No, no, no we do. And, you know, and I make the team test it as well. You know, and we do the obstacle testing and we have several different iterations. We actually worked with a design agency out of California called IDEO to yeah. come up with our design process. And so you know, we go through a kind of ideation, brainstorming process. We do quick and dirty prototypes. And, and then we do alpha testing, which is you know, ourselves testing the obstacle. Mm-hmm. And then we move to beta testing, which is... Um, where we bring in participants and they have to, we confiscate their phones and their GoPros so they can't kind of put any pictures out there. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we get them to test it and we get their feedback, what they enjoyed, what they didn't like. Um, and, and then we're into a process of thinking about, okay, how do we build this at scale? How do we make sure it complies with safety standards all around the world? Can we find the materials? Yeah. Right. Is there any danger that somebody will try and do something different on the obstacle from how we intended it because you know we're putting literally millions of people over it so you need to have something that is literally foolproof yeah. and um uh, and that's all part of the process and as i said it's modeled on the ido process with famous design lab out of california and it's you know, several stages that get you to the finished product so it's a full year cycle for them to come up with the new things so what's coming new? What what new well, ones? Well, we might have be a big um, unveil in January, okay. which I'm very excited. You can't tell us. I'm afraid I can't. But we always unveil our big new obstacles okay. in January. But I can tell you that we're probably going to have a replacement for electroshock therapy. So it's good. Electroshock therapy's out. Well, it may be out, or it may be a new version wow. of it. So, uh, which, as you know, is one of our most signature obstacles. Of course. Um, but we're going to have a new finisher obstacle wow. for all formats of the event, not just for the Tough Mudder Full, but for the half, the 5K, and the Tough of the Toughest and the World's Toughest as well. Wow. So we have well, we been working on that, that in secret for the last year. So I'm excited to tell you more about that in January. Yeah, of course. So when people finish a Tough Mudder, there's an option, I understand, to get a tattoo. That's right. So there, I think I read that there was around 22,000 people. Yep, over 20,000. I don't know if it's 22,000, but I know it's over 20,000 now. It really is a kind of... Tribe. Does, does yeah. anyone get too into it? Does anyone come up to you and they've got all the gear and they know everything about it? Well, I'm not sure I'd say that was too into it. No, from my cool. perspective, no, I, no, I mean, look, there are people that are, you know, do a lot of our events. I mean, we've had three people now that have done over 100 events. So yeah. we, we give out, we call it the Legionnaires Club. And uh, you get a different color headband depending mm-hmm. on how many Tough Mudders you've done. You can work your way up to the Black Belt headband, the 10-time headband. And... You know, at the time when we rolled this out, you know, we, we didn't have that many people that had done more than a handful of events. We've now had three people that have done over 100, and you know, they get special perks on course. And we've had to create a 25, a 50, and a 100-time wow. headband. Um, you know, and World's Toughest Mudder, which is the 24-hour non-stop event that God, we run yeah. at the end of the season, which we also broadcast on TV. You know, people at that event you know, will spend the whole year training for the event, and you know, it becomes... Yeah. For them, you know, the, the focus of their entire life, you know, to try and hit you know, 50 miles is a very big goal at that event. Um, I mean, the winners go 100, but 50 miles is a big wow. achievement. And you've got a lot of people that are very, very focused on yeah. on that. So I think, you know, I'm very proud of the, the lives, you know, we've changed. We have the partnership with Help for Heroes here in the UK. And, you know, we'll meet with these you know young guys that come back from Iraq and Afghanistan you know, and they'll tell us, you know, like, you know, my physio says you know, in a year or two's time, I can do the Tough Mudder. Yeah. And I'm training to do that. I, I'm going to walk again because I'm going to do the Tough Mudder. And Amazing. It's, yeah, it's quite humbling. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And how many events have you run in? I've done a lot now. Um, so I've done, I've probably done about four this year. And, wow. Um, uh, 
yeah, I often end up doing the north with, of twenty five. Yeah, probably. So certainly north of twenty. I think it's twenty two, twenty three okay. now. Yeah. So is it true that you import your mud for your Dubai events? It, it is one hundred percent true. It's an amazing thing. You know, the event in Dubai really does happen in the desert. And, yeah. You know, it, it does kind of you know it's sand <laughs> dunes and kind of looks like you know, the set of Lawrence of Arabia. And um, so there's not much natural mud as you might imagine out there. So where does it and come from? So believe it or not, the mud of the Dubai event is imported from Iran. Um, as part of the RFP process that we went through, the construction yeah. partners, they actually brought samples of mud they were going to bring <laughs> yeah. in. So we had these jam jars of mud and kind of putting our fingers in them and kind of being like, that feels squelchy enough. Okay. But one of the amazing things is, as I understand it, the soil that was imported from Iran to Dubai, mm -hmm. we couldn't have imported before the Iranian nuclear deal okay. because of the sanctions. So in a funny way, the participants at the Dubai event who get to run in the mud, which is this kind of mud pit dug yeah. in a hole in the sand, um, wouldn't have been able to do that had it not been for the Iranian nuclear deal. Incredible. I know. And this might put the cat amongst the pigeons a bit, but who has the best mud in the world? Who has the best mud in the world? Well, you know, the English do do mud very, okay. very well. I'm glad we you get, said that. We get a healthy degree of rain in this country. I think we can all agree on that. Um, but we have heavy clay soil in most okay. parts of the UK. Um, so the English do mud very well. I think New England would give us a run for our money, um, on the west coast of the United States is terrible. And okay. it's, like it's like a very porous soil there, so yeah. it doesn't hold the water very well. So you kind of end up with sort of like brown water rather than mud itself. But people there know that. I know people in California kind of know that, that to state the obvious, they're not in England. So you know, they, uh, they don't necessarily expect the same kind yeah. of thick, squelchy mud that we do so well here. So you've just released a book. I have. That's it right. Takes it, it, it takes a tribe. It takes a tribe. That's right. It's out now. It's um, you know, it's the story in part of how we got the company started and why we started this business that was about running the mud and getting people to do things together. But it's mostly the stories of people whose lives we've changed. And you know, each chapter talks about someone different who Tough Mud has had a huge impact on, from you know people that are overcoming PTSD, difficult yeah. uh, challenges in life, through to some really fun and happy, goofy stories as well. And you know, for me, I wanted to write it because I do believe Tough Mudd has a mission. You know, we talk about building a global tribe based on mm -hmm. the values of teamwork, camaraderie, personal accomplishment, fun and courage. And we're becoming a global business. We're starting to do you know, work in non-English language speaking countries, very different cultures. And you know, it's been an amazing but an intense seven years. And it felt like a logical time to try and set out a bit about why we're doing what we're doing. And you know, the, I think the book is, you know, anyone who's interested in Tough Mudder or doing an event will find it interesting. And anybody that's interested about starting a company or trying yeah. to uh, um, trying to apply entrepreneurial lessons in their work, I think I think will enjoy it. So it was a, uh, it was hard work in many ways, just as hard as starting a company, writing yeah. a book. But I'm but I'm very glad I did it. Yeah. Well, I yeah, look forward to reading it completely. So as we round the kind of corner into, yeah. the, into the final obstacle, yeah. that's an awful metaphor, but there you go. Um, <laughs> uh, we usually like to do these quick fire okay. questions. Let's so go you've got to be sure. as honest and as quick I as possible. I will do my best. Okay, right. good stuff. Okay. So, Will, who in the world of business do you most admire? That is a good question. You know, I'm, I think there are a lot of people, um, you know, in this country, it is hard to ignore Richard Branson. You know, he really of was course. like the first, you know, really like megastar entrepreneur in this country. And, you know, he's made it his life's work. And, you know, he was an entrepreneur before being an entrepreneur was cool. And yeah. you know, he's done some amazing things. Absolutely. What would you be doing if you weren't doing this? I've no idea. Um, <laughs> 
Uh, I think I'd be running something else. And okay. I think it would be to do with something in sports, fitness, okay. community, but exactly what, 100%. Right. What are you most proud of in your career so far? I think you know, when we go to World's Toughest and you kind of, we do this brunch afterwards and, you know, you see you know, how Tough Mudders really has impacted thousands of people. And, you know, it's one thing to kind of read about it and or even hear about it. Um, but, you know, most of my day I'm doing what business people do. I'm in meetings and, you know, reviewing budgets, that kind of stuff. And, you know, when you can kind of be with the community and see how it's changed people's yeah. lives. You know, this year we had our first adaptive athlete do World's Toughest Mudder, so in a wheelchair. And he was going for the wow. goal of 25 miles. And when you think about what you've got to do, I mean, one of the obstacles of the cliff is a 40-foot drop into water. And, you know, he was being winched off that, you know, wow. down into the water, his chair being winched down as well, and then going across this pond out the other side and climbing out. It really was pretty humbling stuff. And to yeah. see what Tough Mudder's become in his life is, is amazing. That's incredible. And what, on the other side, is perhaps your biggest failure or regret in the whole...? I think... Um, I think in the early days, we put huge pressure on ourselves to just move very, very quickly. And yeah. some of that was necessary. But I think in some ways, you know, we pushed ourselves a little too hard. And you know, I think we did burn ourselves out a little bit. And I think, you know, if I was doing it all over again, I would still try and grow quickly. But mm-hmm. I, you know, I think sometimes people can become obsessed with growth as a metric and unsustainable growth is not a good thing. Yeah. What's your most treasured physical possession? Yeah, so that's a good question. I really try not to become too materialistic about things. You know, I spend a lot of time in the States and you can become a bit obsessed about what you own. But I will say, you know, I try and ride my uh, road bike in the morning, particularly when I'm in Brooklyn. There's a, which is where we have a home and um, the park near the office, and there's a bike loop in Prospect Park there. Mm. And I, if I can get 10, 15 miles in in the morning before I go into the office, it's just always a better day, even if it's kind of cold and miserable. Um, it seems to be the best kind of release of stress and energizer for me. Sure. And what's your, which book has influenced you the most in your life, do you think? Uh, that's a great question. Or is there a book that you recommend to people oh, more I, often? Yes. So I think both. Um, you know, The Lean Startup by Eric Ries yeah. is a great book. You know, it, um, I think so much of business makes it seem like it's either this very complicated thing or this kind of swashbuckling adventure. And you know, he does a very good job of saying, look, it's about having an idea figuring out how you test it cheaply without having to commit a ton of resources mm-hmm. to it. And then if it works, repeating that. Yeah. Um, and at its core, it's a simple message, but I think it's one that's often misunderstood. And what's your idea of perfect happiness? Um, <laughs> well, I'm not sure you can ever be perfectly happy. You know, I mean, I think probably the human condition is yeah. such that well, we should always be pushing ourselves to go and do new things. I think, like most people, I know, balance is this kind of abstract idea that sounds nice but it's tough right I mean we all have these conflicting pressures and I think getting to a place where I'm honest with myself about how much I can get done in one day is something I'm yet to master I'm not sure I ever will but if I could I'd probably be a bit more relaxed okay good and do you have a personal motto um you know I, I think I try and live by you know I think very much about the company mission, you know, which we have, which is around you know, growing Tough Mudder into uh, this global tribe that lives yeah. the values. And it, the values of teamwork, camaraderie, personal accomplishment, fun, courage, I think are probably the values that are most important to me and in my life. And, you know, I do try and live consistently by those. Amazing. Will Dean, thank you very much oh, for speaking to having us. Me on. Thank you. 
Thank you very, very much for listening to this episode of the Gentleman's Journal podcast. We'll be back in a fortnight with more invaluable insights from the world of entrepreneurs. But until then, you can find us on our website, which is www.thegentlemansjournal.com. Or if you're so inclined, follow us on Instagram at The Gents Journal or indeed on Twitter at The Gents Journal. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you very, very soon.